what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, you know what we haven't done for a long time? Dance together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can arrange that. But the other thing we haven't done for a long time is new ads. Yeah, okay, let's do that. Yeah, let's do that. All right. We've got to start with the OG. We always start with the OG. Yeah. But he's good to start with. The odds are wiener. Yep. The wiener himself. Yep. The original sponsor of the show, Mm. the man who wanted to sponsor us from episode one, and we told him to fuck off. And then later we're like, hey, we'll take some of that money now, please. (laughs) Grumpiest but most lovable prick you could ever meet in your life. Yeah. It's the Einzer wiener. Yep. Jason Furman, Mm. Einswick Dog Quip. If you're in Australia, that's where you're getting your stuff. Yeah. Crazy if you don't get. Pretty much. If you want dog stuff, get it from there. Have you seen that he hand makes a lot of his stuff as well? I've seen that. He tags me in his Instagram. I, I know. See it. Me too. I see it. He's using his sewing machine. Yep. Playing his songs. He's really embracing social media these days. Yep. He used to have nothing at all. Yeah. A shit website. Yeah. But now, now he's, he's got a working website and social media. I like watching him use his sewing machine. Next thing I know, he'll be making linen on a loom. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> hey, you know who else sponsors the show? Who? Your wife. She does. Yeah. Canine Suticles. Yep. The best dog Suticles, <laughs> the best canine suticles. Premium grade, yep. human quality. Yeah. It's going gangbusters at the moment. Thank you to the community who have been supporting yeah, it. Yeah, it's great shit. There's been hot demand for her to get this all over the world. Like mm-hmm. people are asking her from every country. She's looking into it at the moment. Okay. So that's going to happen. All right. I caught up with George Kittridge and saw the actual Rowdy Hound box. I know. Yeah. So I had a good talk with George actually about his process in getting this thing to market. Yep. It's a motherfucker. So you should, if you want one, you should get one because George has put a lot of work into turning this dream into a reality. He and did so much R&D, didn't he? Oh, huge. And yep. the, the product is amazing. Yep. And so he's got one. training videos, everything showing he trains and supports people how to get the dog into it, yep. how to make it safe, yep. how to make the dog have a good experience from so it. So if you ride a motorbike and you have a dog, you need the Rowdy Hound dog box on the back of that motorbike. Absolutely. Next, Fabian Romo. Yes. He's got a shop, Mojo. And you've seen it. I've been in there. You've I stolen stole a tug. Stuff. Yeah. I stole a tug. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd said as I was leaving, I'm taking this, yep. so I guess it doesn't count. But yeah. Mojo Doggy. Did you pay for it? I mean. With your time. Yeah. So it's not really a theft. Yeah. Okay. Everything's fine. If you need dog gear in North America, that's where to get it. Mojo. Yeah. yeah. They've got everything. What he has, to be honest, is the best dog trainer's shop. Yep. It's without a doubt the best shop that I've walked into where you can buy actual dog trainer gear. Yep. Yeah. You know, high quality e-collars, mills, leashes, you know, all that's the impressive. things. Like proper tugs, like all the actual things that yep. real dog trainers use. Mm. Mojo. Get it there. We have a new sponsor also. We do. Yeah. Daniel Trapino. Trapino. Yeah, that yeah, sounds about Daniel right. Daniel Trapino. It's Dog Club, South yeah, Australia. Yeah. What does he do there? It's kind of like a little hangout hood that he's created there. A little cultural hub. A little cultural hub in South Australia. So I think that's what Daniel was trying to go for, was to try and embrace and build the culture in South Australia. Because I will be honest, it's been sadly lacking for many, many years. Mm. Like not much really canine came out of South Australia. So I think it doesn't mean there aren't good dog trainers down there, some very good dog trainers and personalities down in South Australia, but they've never really 
elevated it. And I think that's what Daniel wants to do. He really wants to push it out into the public forefront. Get in there, South Australians. Get into the dog, dog club. club. SA. We must never forget Dan Croft. Dan Croft in Canada. What a good yeah. bloke he is. I love speaking to Dan as well. Yeah. Great facility. Great facility. Really emphasizing his puppy training programs. Mm-hmm. I just put an ad up today on Instagram showing a little Doberman doing his little course running around. But that's what he really wants to emphasize on the critical period of development in young dogs and puppies. But it's not only that. I mean, it's all working breeds. As I've said before, as you've said before, very impressive to watch all of these dogs on BOSU balls, balancing and all of the breeds that other people usually are shying away from. He's got like a whole room full of them there. Great shop, great setup, great social media. I really like the Dan Croft setup. Our last person. Who? Barbara DeGroote. Oh, lovely Barbara. Yeah, the sugar mama. From the heart dog training. Yeah. She didn't really want to emphasize. She just said, here, have some cash. Yeah, so we just want to say thank you, Barbara. We, we do want to say thank you, Barbara. Thank you for supporting us. You're we wonderful. You. We do love you. On with the show. Indeed. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Hello, everyone. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm wonderful. What's our topic for today? I want to talk about anthropomorphism. <laughs> Specifically like that. Yeah. Because <laughs> I always have a hard time saying that word. So anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. So let's define it first because there might be people who don't know what that is. Sure. I have the, We've, the, haven't we spoken about anthropomorphism before? Yeah, a little bit, not in depth. Okay. You really want to get into the weeds of it. Well, I have some questions about it. Okay. So anthropomorphism is the attribution of human traits, emotions, or intentions to non-human entities. Yes. It is considered to be an innate tendency of human psychology. Personification is the related attribution of human form and characteristics to abstract concepts such as nations, emotions, and natural forces such as seasons and weather. Both have ancient roots as storytelling and artistic devices, and most cultures have traditional fables with anthropomorphized animals as characters. Yep. So we use that term a lot as dog trainers. Something I saw a long time ago, I'm going to say the name that no one wants to hear, Jordan Peterson, Mm -hmm. uh, in an interview, (laughs) I think it was the one, the GQ interview he did many years ago, but he basically said that the more we're learning about animal psychology, the more we're realizing that we don't anthropomorphize anywhere near what we thought we did in the past. We're constantly finding out that dogs and other animals are more and more capable than we realized of having more complex emotions that in the past we would say, no, they can't do that. But now we're realizing actually they can. And most notably in dogs is that we think dogs can love their owner Mm. and they've done fMRI experiments to demonstrate that. Is it they show them a picture of the person, right? Or or they they, they either bring the person in or they show a picture of the person. And the same region in the brain that lights up for us when you feel love or affection towards them is lighting up in their brains. Mm -hmm. Yep. So we as dog trainers, when we're attempting to help people with their situations, we often face what we call anthropomorphic explanations of why a dog is doing something by the owner. Very Mm. often. Sometimes people are anthropomorphic and other times they're just wrong. 
One of them, for example, is the scared leash-reactive dog that their owner says is defending them. That's one of the things where I think people are just wrong and they're sort of reading into – now, I don't know if we can put that in the category technically of anthropomorphization. Yes, I would struggle with finding that that was specifically related to anthropomorphism and more like wishful thinking. Yeah, in that case, probably just wrong. Yeah, that's wrong. (laughs) Your dog is scared – and defending its own life. And the reason it only happens when it's on leash and around you is because you have taken away the flight and you've left it with nothing but fight and it's choosing that. Exactly. So I want to tell you about something that happened Mm. to me. Now I am a professional dog trainer. I think that I understand dogs fairly well. Yep. I try very hard to think from the point of view of the dog, especially when I'm trying to train behaviors, especially, you know, we've talked about this many, many times on the show. I think that a lot of what I do is helping people with their competition work, right? Mm. People who are training to achieve something, whether they ever intend to like truly compete or not or whatever. I work with a lot of those type of people. And healing is one of the things that I often use as an example. When people say they want help with their healing, not that I'm a healing guru, but I help many, many people with it, is I usually will have them explain to me what healing looks like. Yep. And most people are like, well, the dog's walking by my side, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, like that's not a stringent enough criteria because most people's pet dogs are walking by their side, right? Oh, okay, well, I want the dog to look at me. Okay, but do we want the dog like head straight up looking at you or coiled around looking at you? And is the dog allowed to forge? Is that part of it? Because you didn't say not doing that. Should the dog be touching you? Should the dog be prancing? Should the dog be like walking powerfully? All these questions that come under the criteria of what people would call healing. And depending on the sport that you play or just your own personal criteria on what you want to do, that would change how you would heal. Mm. You look at a dog that's performing in like an IGP event will look very different from a Belgian ring event, right? Like where they're both healing, they're both being scored against the healing and a dog that gets full points in both could actually look very, very, very different for you reversed. Know, what what their healing is because yep. is almost indistinguishable from each other. Right? Oh, sorry, completely different from each other, not indistinguishable. Mm. So I say to people, think from the dog's perspective. Like you want something specific from the dog, you have to first be able to explain that to me using human language. Mm. Give the criteria of what it is that we're going to try and teach to the dog. And now playing nothing but charades, we have to try and convey that to the dog. Yep. So think from the dog's point of view. What is healing? What does that look like? So a lot of the training, a lot of the way that I teach things, I really try hard to think from the dog's point of view. Mm. And it's difficult for me to do that sometimes without tipping into anthropomorphism, right? Because when, especially when you're looking to Explain solve- Explain that. I need you to get into the weeds of that. When you're looking to solve behavioral problems mm. and why a dog might be doing something, jealousy is one of the interesting ones. I don't know whether a dog can be jealous. And one time I read a Facebook post by someone who was staunchly saying, a big name in the industry, was staunchly saying that there's no way a dog can feel a complex emotion like jealousy. What they have is anger, which they can feel, over right of access to, what was it? A right of access to- A resource. A resource. And I was like, that might be the best definition of jealousy I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that- We don't have good enough tools to really truly understand a dog's emotional state Mm -hmm. and the complexities of it. Now, empathy is another one that I feel like I have observed dogs being empathetic. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've observed that. 
But that's another very complex emotion that very often other dog trainers might say, no, a dog can't be empathetic. They don't have the complexity of understanding to get that. What's your thoughts on that? The image of what I understood of what a dog is when I first started in training or even when I was a younger bloke before I started training is vastly different to what I understand now. Thanks to the hard work that men and women have done around the world in advances in psychological sciences and understanding how the brain works and how animals feel and process emotions. I am challenged by what I'm seeing and I believe that I've seen it all my life, but people that I've looked up to as mentors and guides in my life have told me to think otherwise rather than to question what I'm seeing visibly in front of my own eyes. That's the difficulty that I think many of us have had. Mm. And to rephrase something that Cam Ford said a while ago in one of his podcasts was, we carry the stories that our old Uncle Jim or our granddad told us. Totally. And we portray them to people and they get told up the line for Mm -hmm. generations because somebody that you trust, somebody that you have a relationship with, somebody you have an emotional connection to, told you a story and you like that person or you feel that that person has mentored you or been an advisor to you in some capacity. So therefore you want to take their story and you want to tell it to your students and your students will then go on and tell their students and so on and so on. And I think this is where some of these, a myth, like it's a- Like an urban legend. And it's an ur- That's it. Yes. It's an yeah. urban legend. Yeah. And it develops into this story For example, I was listening to Life With Your Dog Uh when I was coming home tonight and I heard their recent guest on there, Fiona Gaffney, who's a lovely girl. Uh She's got pickle. And she was talking about how her experiences, I haven't finished the whole episode, but I heard her speaking about how she used a prong collar and her original reservations on having one. But I heard her use the term power steering. Mm. Now, I know for a fact, a fact, that Boyd and I, and the ADT team were the ones who coined it power steering in the first place. Okay. That's a fact. Now, the reason that I know that when people talk about it now, there's people who drive cars now who don't know what it's like to drive a car without power steering uh-huh. because for the last 20 or 30 years, the cars have come standard. with power steering standard. Yeah. I know what it was like to drive a car without power steering. My mm-hmm. first car I had was a fucking pain in the ass old pig to drive around yeah, without yeah. power steering. Yeah. You probably know what it's like. You yeah, may, mate, may... my Mustang, I actually right. got it's... bigger lats yes. from driving yes. my Mustang. Yeah, your arms get fucking huge with driving cars <laughs> without power steering. Well, especially really... parking them when you, when yes. you don't turn the wheel when, yep. when you're not moving. That's right, yeah, because yeah. you really you have to turn the tires on yeah. the ground with your muscles. Yeah. So power steering does all that work for you. So when people say that now, and I hear it coined a lot, they're getting it from us. So we use that term at the start because we use that as an analogy. It's like power steering. Mm -hmm. We could have got it from the Americans. We could have. Pat O'Connor, who brought the first prong collar over to us in the early days, he might have said it and then we might have got it from him. But I know for a fact that we were saying it first. So when I hear people say it, it's a word, it's a phrase that's been carried on from all those times ago. Now, that's 35 years ago now Mm. that that term is still being said in the industry today. So it's terms and phrases and beliefs like that that start during those early days and get taken up tribally through all of the people in the industry. 
And it, especially in Australia, when you look at the people that come to the seminars, we're mostly the same group of people. Mm-hmm. So let's say there's 200 of us that usually go in and out of seminars together. Mm-hmm. There's usually a collection of about 60 to 80 of us who are regular people who go to the same sort of seminars mm-hmm. around Australia. So we're all talking to each other. We're all listening to each other's podcasts. We're all interacting and networking with each other. Mm -hmm. So it's no wonder that we collect information and share it around amongst each other as we do. When you start thinking back into the original concept of anthropomorphism and what we feel and think about when we see dogs and we're interacting with them, it's many of us who are advising each other because I've told people not to be anthropomorphic when dealing with dogs because of my limited information. But then fMRI came out and then that changed the scope of things. And then we found out that dogs don't see in black and white, that they actually do have rods and cones that are limited, but they can see in limitations of color, Mm -hmm. just not the same as us. But when I was a kid, I was told, no, it's black and white. Mm -hmm. Even people in religious circle believe that dogs don't have souls, yet they're alive like us. They have the flicker that we do. Why don't they have souls? Mm. Where does that come from? That comes from a belief that souls are only limited to human beings. Mm. So when a dog dies and that ember goes, that's just it. I mean, fuck that. Mm. Seriously, I don't want to go to a place that doesn't have my old dogs there. I'm looking to be reunited with my old dogs. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. I know I'm getting a little ethereal and ahead of things. Hang on, I want to lean into this slightly. Okay. Do you believe there are dog souls and that, like, the soul just gets one go? That's a very complicated question. Should we not get into this? I don't mind having a stab at it, (laughs) but I'm certainly no authority on it in Mm -hmm. any way, shape or form. no one is. That's right. You you only find out when you're dead. I would like to think so. You think that there's dog souls? No, sorry. I think that there is a rotation in how souls work, that if you choose it, that's what you can do. Mm -hmm. Or- In some cultures, it's a punishment. What you antagonized or the problems that you caused, you then are returned to earth and to face life as that entity to see what it was like to see it from their point of view, Mm. to learn the lesson. It's a teaching moment, some religions believe. But again, I'm not a religious deity or an icon or somebody who's a professional in that area. I think it's just wishful thinking when you get back into it again. Mm. But You know, as I said before, the whole secret to life that somebody said to me the other day is that none of us get out of it alive. We all have to die. And that's the only time that we're actually going to find out on the other side. So it might be just a big black nothingness and that we just get returned to the cosmos, like some people believe, or it may be that we're in judgment of a greater deity that is going to basically tell us how good or bad we're going to be and then open the trap door to another dimension. And who knows? It gets very deep and dark from that point on. Mm. But I would like to think that whatever soul possessed the dogs, especially my old mates that I'm looking at up on the wall now, I'd love to meet them. I'd love to be reunited with them again. Mm -hmm. You know, and that type of thinking when I was a young guy was always considered anthropomorphic. You Mm -hmm. were, and again, you were offending people religiously if you were talking about that because that goes against the grain of what they learn against the teachings of Jesus Christ or Muhammad Mm. or whoever. Yeah. So can you, I know I'm putting you on the spot, can you give me an example of a person recently or or ever that was being anthropomorphic and you still believe that to be the case? I do see people that I think are being anthropomorphic when they're asking their dogs to perform complex human behaviours 
and the dog isn't compliant because it doesn't understand how to process what they're asking. Mm -hmm. That for me is my definition in terms of anthropomorphism. When they're talking to it like a comprehensive child Mm -hmm. and they're giving it instructions that you would see a child being able to listen to, identify and carry out with. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that the child still needs to learn how to do this. It still needs to be a behaviour that's shaped within the child to understand it. But eventually that child is going to come online. The human cognitive processes are going to kick in and with enough time, even without their parents, even with society, they're going to comprehend how to speak, how to walk, how to perform certain duties. That's how the human mind works and is developing ongoing. Dogs can only still be dogs at the end of the day. Mm. Yes, they can perform complex skills. You and I teach dogs to do complex skills on a regular basis and we teach and train other people how to teach a dog to perform complex skills. But the dog won't learn them on its own. Mm. Like void the reinforcement and void the punishment or void the consequence, I should say, the dog will revert back quickly to being a dog where a human will still develop and evolve into being a human. Okay. So what you think people would say when their dog does something, am I correct when I say that you think that's anthropomorphic when they attribute the reason they're doing that to being because of something the dog understands when perhaps the dog doesn't really understand it, the dog just finds reinforcement in doing it? The evidence for me is when the reinforcement or when extinction is set up, the dog will quickly dump the behavior Mm -hmm. because it just doesn't see any value in doing it anymore. Where a human being would be more likely to repeat the behavior, to attempt to do it a couple of times or even to see if they can satisfy their own self needs. And I think that for me isolates and identifies where I see the difference between how a human comprehends and how a dog does simply by the concept the dog is only doing it as it's incrementally coached to do it. And I know you can still incrementally coach human beings, but, you know, like I said, human beings will evolve without that happening on their own merits. They'll see value in attempting behaviours. They'll try things where dogs will try things that are more dog-like in behaviour. Like they don't seem to really, and it's certainly my time on earth, I don't seem to see dogs evolving outside a massive scope. I see them doing things where crafty and intelligent and very patient trainers have worked with them. Side note, I did hear Joe Rogan the other day, another person we shouldn't mention on the show apparently, (laughs) saying that allegedly there are ethologists and Darwinistic people who are basically comprehending that dogs that are living near Chernobyl are starting to – evolve ahead of their planned schedule because of their exposure to radiation. I saw an article about that. I didn't read the article. Yeah, nor have I. I only heard a snippet about it and I'd love to hear more about Mm, that because I thought, yeah, well, they're primarily saying that it's kick-started their evolution. Mm. Into what? Again, I don't know. What does that mean? Godzilla. Well, Dogzilla. 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 (laughs) (laughs) When we're having NDTF discussions and it gets into a bit of a discussion of the world and the dogs that we live in and share with. This term anthropomorphism comes up because it is interesting and it does perplex people. People struggle with this concept and they really want to get into a lengthy discussion about it with anybody who will listen because it's interesting and because it does get touted around a lot in the industry. So one thing that I do say to people is when you walk into this building, who sat down here and looked around them and thought, oh my God, look at the structure of this building, those metal beams and the flashings and the color of the color bond outside is just staggering. And I can't believe this concrete slab that we're all sitting on. And I said, 
human beings are capable of doing some of the most ingenious things that you could possibly think of. The mere fact that we've got a that phone in our pocket that I keep marvelling about through episodes that we're mm. talking about. Things like that were all science fiction. I know I've said that before, but, I, I mean, it still marvels me today and it does when you watch technology advance. But no dog is able to do that. They can't do anything other than den. Mm. They're crafty enough to work out how to manipulate humans around a little bit and that's pretty clever on its own. But that's still our choice. Some people choose to and some people choose not to. I don't think there's a dog collective where they all get together and think we're going to fucking psychologically fuck humans over. Mm. But then again, I could be wrong. I don't know for a fact. But I've never seen a dog write with a ballpoint pen. Mm. I've never seen a dog do taxes. I've never seen a dog help get out of the car and help you change the flat tire when you're stuck on the side of the road. You know, like I've never seen them evolve to do things like that. And people might be listening to this and think, well, this is getting a bit silly now, but that's what some people who are anthropomorphic start thinking about their dogs because they start trapping themselves into thinking that the dog is capable of doing things beyond what it is to be a dog mm. because they see people teaching their dogs to ride bikes in social media and so forth. But that's shaping. Yeah, that's just training behaviour. Th- that's behaviour where somebody has been very, very patient and they've been – it's like me teaching Ladybug how to stand on a ball and stand up in the air. That was, yeah, that was months, and months and months and months and months of successive approximation, free shaping into shaping and just biding my time and hoping that it went well. Mm. And the payoff happened in the end. I mean, there's multiples of skilled trainers who do it with parrots. They do it with sea mammals. They do it with horses. They do it with pelicans. They do it with otters. The list goes on and on. I've seen people do it with aquarium fish. You know, they've taught aquarium fish to swim in certain pattern behaviors and so forth. But I don't think at any time people think, oh my God, my fish has just become more human. Mm. But then again, they might. So I want to just explore a couple more things before I give these examples. And I want to ask you if you think I'm being anthropomorphic. Okay. Something I think that's interesting is say like a dog that can read a a human sort of emotional state and act accordingly. Mm. Do you think that they really care about the emotional state of the person or they're acting for some form of reinforcement? Let me, let me be more specific. Valerie, for example, my spring spaniel, if you are upset, she will sit in your lap. Now you know her as, as well as anybody. She doesn't stop. You know what she's like. She runs around. She's like the energizer bunny. She never stops. Yep. But if you come into my house and sit down and start crying, she will be in your lap immediately. Yep. Right. And that has happened, you know, I think I spoke about it one time on the podcast that our neighbor, their cat died, the girl was like young girl, I think she was like probably nine at the time. She's in my house, she sees my dog, she just remembers, oh shit, my cat died. She sits down, she gets really upset, she starts crying, Val gets into her lap and just sits with her, leans against her. They have like a bit of a moment together, mm. then she kind of shakes it off and then Valerie was very clearly like affected by that. Like she took that emotional toll and then she had to leave. Like she actually went outside and by herself, she went like the, all the kids were in the yard, she went into the front yard and she kind of sat in the sun for like a good five, 10 minutes and had to, it looked a lot to me like she had to sort of dump the emotional energy that she had attempted to withdraw from that little girl. Mm. Now, I've had plenty of upset dogs in my house. I've had sick dogs in my house. I've had all the different things that a dog trainer experiences by bringing dogs in the house. Valerie has never given one fuck about any of those dogs. Yep. It's not that – now, she will – if I bring a puppy along, she will coax that puppy. But in the house, like, it's like, no, you're on your own. I don't care about you and your emotional state. 
Do you think that she actually cares about any human in their emotional state or she draws some reinforcement from giving comfort in the way that she does when someone is upset? That's a really good question. Also attributing that it's a good observation because I think that there is a couple of possibilities there. A couple of possibilities could be that when people are feeling down and sad and she does get in their lap, it means that she gets a closer connection and people start paying more attention to Mm -hmm. her and they touch her more and give her more of what she doesn't normally get. Sometimes busy little dogs get pushed away or encouraged to go and chase a toy. However, I've seen things from dogs before, my own dogs, and it's generally our own dogs that we observe these things with, where I have been in different frames of mind. Like when you're excited, the dogs are excited with you and you could say, well, that's beneficial for them because they usually get to play. That's when you're playful and they get to play and therefore it's reinforcing for them. However, there have been times where... And Biffy, my old Rottweiler, he was a very emotional dog. You met Biff, didn't you? Yeah. Biffy was a funny old fellow. If he was inside with you and you were sitting in the lounge and you weren't feeling good, he would just come in and rest his head in your lap and he'd just stare at you soulfully with these eyes. Mm -hmm. Now, again, that could be that possibly that during that time he was more likely to get stroked and therefore he's remembered that and he's thought, well, when you look like this – and I do this, I get more cuddly and sensitive pats on the side of my head. Mm-hmm. So that's one way of thinking. Mm. The Which other one- feels overly reductionist to me. I think that we can, because we have been very clued in for a long time to believe that dogs don't have souls and they're beasts and they have their limitations, I also believe that we have been encouraged not to allow us to think anything other than And I know that we have changed somewhat over time, but I also believe that we have very much been encouraged by our spiritual leaders to hold off on thinking of dogs other than a beast, Mm -hmm. as I said before, rather than something that has a special meaning to us or rather than something that actually thinks and feels and comprehends. Mm. To what degree? Again, we're still learning about that. The jury's still out. Science is still concluding that. And there's not been a a shitload of research that's been done on it by a lot of people. I mean, I don't think it's ever been something that has, up until recently, has generated much interest or much finances that people would be prepared to throw at it. Mm. It seems to be only in the last 10 years suddenly people have thought, let's start looking into this a little little more deeply. Mm. And it was very sacrilegious to question spiritual leaders and also the scientific community at the time to go against their findings because up until recent times, we haven't had the scientific equipment to be able to process what dogs actually think and feel. Reductionist? Maybe. Maybe. To be fair, I'm guessing. Mm. Oh, we all are. And that's what I feel about the greater community is that I feel sometimes Phrasing things like that's anthropomorphic was A, a phrase that was given to us by our mentors and B, I think that it just helps explain away a problem when you've got a client in front of you asking what's happening with my dog Mm. and it feels like a very convenient line to drop and something that sounds somewhat pseudo-intelligent that we can say, well, that's anthropomorphic to do that. And don't get me wrong, it's not that I don't believe that times that people are anthropomorphic because I do and the point that I gave before when I think that people are being far too complicated with their demands or expectations of their dogs or pets, I think those times they're being somewhat anthropomorphic with their animals. Mm. 
I had a vet once accuse me of being anthropomorphic. How dare he? Well, she, and she was, <laughs> from her perspective, she was quite right. Right. Valerie doesn't like going to the vet, all right? It's yep. not like it's a big ordeal, but she just clearly doesn't like it, all yep. right? I said to the vet one day when she just gets really flat in there, she clearly doesn't want to be there. And it's because, like, she had her tail removed twice. She had a half dock after she got a tail the first time, and then that didn't work, and she had to have a full dock. So that would have been painful and a terrible mm, experience. Yeah. I made a joke to the vet when she was like, oh, she's such a sad little dog. And I was like, she's not at all. It's just she doesn't like coming here because she loses body parts every time she comes here, right? Yep. Just made it like a joke. And she was like, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, you'll see in a file there that her towels had to be docked in two parts. And I said, she actually went into quite a severe depression when she was desexed. And the vet kind of looked at me like, what do you mean? And I said, yeah, she was quite depressed afterwards. And she went, like my house is three stories. She went to the top story of the house and I barely saw her for two weeks. She came down to eat every couple of days and to use the bathroom, but she just stayed up there by herself and took a couple of weeks for her to come down. And the vet, she was quite rude to me, actually. She said, oh, that's anthropomorphic because like she doesn't know that she was sex. She implied that I was saying because she lost her opportunity to be a mummy, right? Like, mm. And I was like, no, you fucking removed her uterus. Do you think that doesn't affect her hormones? <laughs> like, yeah. she was implying that I was the dummy. And I was like, if we're going to play who's the dummy here, you don't realize that you removed a giant amount of her hormone producing capability and blah, blah, blah. And it totally makes sense that a, like, f- however old she was, five-year-old dog or whatever, would struggle post being dissect. Yeah. Right? But so that is, I think, the perfectly correct use. Had I actually thought that she was depressed over the idea that she is never going to get to have puppies because she used to be, you remember how good she was always with puppies, very maternal. She raised a lot of puppies. Yep. We used to use her as a surrogate all the time to raise puppies. Like she is very good with them. And to the idea that being dissect, she would, first of all, understand that that happened to her and second, realize the implication that she's no longer fertile and could never have puppies of her own. I think that's anthropomorphic. I feel confident saying that if I had thought that, then that would be anthropomorphic. Mm. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I guess I do. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a good point. So I think it comes down to sort of levels of comprehension is really the category we can put into whether something is anthropomorphic or not. Yeah. I do find that there's a blur between the two of them Mm -hmm. sometimes. For sure. And this is what I want to ask you about. Yeah, and that's the hard part about it. Interesting you were talking about that with the hormonal side of it. I believe it was Andrew Huberman talking about women and their choice of partners when they've been on contraceptives. Oh, yeah, it would definitely change. Versus when they come off contraceptives and how different they feel about their partner post and pre. Mm -hmm. It's no wonder that it could be such a dramatic feeling. Look, I know several friends who have had hysterectomies before. They've told me how they felt about it pre during and post, and they said we went through a wild ride of emotions yeah, during totally. that time. totally. Some of them had spates of depression. Yeah. Everybody deals with these sort of things differently. So wh- why can't dogs? Yeah, exactly. And I think that the average suburban vet probably doesn't do a lot of desexing of that nature. Mm. So it's like a dog that I've had her whole life. And decided to do it because she kept getting false pregnancies and I knew I wasn't going to breed her. And there are a host of reasons why I decided it was the right decision. But she was my dog prior to that. I know her very, very well and remain my dog after. I think most people that are getting a dog, an adult dog desexed, it's a new dog to them. It's from a rescue or whatever because most people are, you know, or it's a retired breeding dog or something like that, that they've come into their possession. They didn't know the dog especially well prior to that. And then the subtle behavior changes that you'll notice afterwards are not going to be known to the person because they don't know the change between 
before and after. Mm. I think it's rare that, you know, the situation that I was in on with her is, is quite rare. So here's my story I want to tell. Before you do that, can I just say a point? Yeah. I do want to say this respectfully because there might be some people out there that this will trigger and I don't mean to because it's a genuine point. But I know several people who have been amputees before, Mm -hmm. motorcycle friends and so forth who have lost limbs from Mm -hmm. road accidents. One of them specifically shared with me stories about how many times he attempted to take his life when he lost his leg Mm -hmm. because he felt like a lesser person. How could he be a man? How could he be a father? How could he be effective. On the other side of that, he's doing very well for himself, but it took him many, many years of therapy to overcome that. I have never seen an, a dog that I've known of that's lost a limb before that's wanted to take its life that I know of. Mm. So yeah, that's interesting. It's an observation. Yeah. So there's that, that every dog that's lost a limb that I know of, and I know, you know, I've had dogs of my own that had to lose limbs due to osteosarcoma and which is cancer of the bone and so forth. And not any one of them has ever lost their will to live. Mm. They've been sore. They've been in pain. I've never seen them attempt to take their life or just lie down and, and give up. If anything, they thrive. Mm. The pain is gone. The cancer is gone. They're just thinking, fuck it. I might fall over a bit more, but now I've learned to adapt to my center of mass. Mm. There might be people out there who say, Glenn, my dog was totally different when it lost its leg. I don't know you and I don't know your dog. So that might be a valid yeah. story. Yeah. That's true. If there is a, a dog that has gone through that cycle in the feedback on their forum or privately, let me know. I'm curious about it. But my observation and the hundreds of people I know who have been friends, colleagues and clients whose dogs have lost limbs or had tails docked or anything like that, I know that's different than losing a leg, but it's still a limb removed. None of them that I've seen have lost any will to live. Mm, yeah, okay. So now you've got a point. All right, this is what gave me cause. I've got two stories of mm. both my own dogs, yep. right? A few weeks ago, came out here to training, brought Remy, got him out to toilet him. He's limping, decided not to do any work with him. Mm-hmm. So he's been in the box for, I don't know, by the time we get home, he's been in the box for probably eight hours, right? Like he gets out to toilet and stuff, but he's been waiting his turn to do bite work, didn't get to do it. He yep. can hear all the other dogs doing it, comes home angry, Yep. right? So I get home, I'm getting ready to go to bed. Both my dogs are in the house. I go upstairs, I'm in the shower. Jane, we're both in the shower and Valerie comes like marching into the bathroom and stares at me very intently, right? While I'm in the shower. And we're like, what's going on here? And she's staring, she's got something to say. Like if she She probably did, she was probably going, that looks something like a penis. <laughs> Just <laughs> looks like a penis, but smaller. Uh, but so she's staring at me and yep. like, you know, she might normally come up and sort of hang out in the bedroom or something like that. I'm like in the ensuite to my room, right? And she's very intently, she's in the bathroom, which is very uncommon. And I'm mm. like, oh, something's going on. Like I immediately know this is an abnormal behavior. Something's not right. Yep. So I say to her, because I'm an idiot, I'm like, what's going on, Bubba? And she stares at me like she's got something to say. Like, you know that sort of thousand-yard stare that she can do where she's fully piercing eyeballs? Yep. And I'm like, what do you want from me? Yeah. So then she turns around and she gets onto the bed, which, like, is visible from the shower, and maintains eye contact with me the whole time. I laugh and I said to Jane, she's dobbing on Remy. She's for sure dobbing on him, right? Mm. And Jane then says, yeah, she's trying to make sure that she has an alibi for whatever's happening. Yep. So I get out of the shower, go downstairs. Sure enough, Remy's got something he's tearing it apart. 
right? Because he's come home like Loaded I've been up. listening to dogs do bite work. I didn't get to do yep. anything. I didn't get to do any work because I'm limping and he's got uh, the bin and he's had a pillow and he's just ripping it to shreds, right? Yep. Being a mal- like he's just gone like a puppy malinois. I just remembered he's got no training and he's tearing it apart in the house. Now, in my mind, she for sure came up to dog on him. What was her intent? Was she either telling me, hey, Remy's down there wrecking stuff and you need to go down and stop it? Or was she saying, I need to be visible to you so that when you find this problem, you know for sure it wasn't me and and I don't get the blame for this? Or C, I don't know what was intent there. How anthropomorphic am I in thinking it's one or both of those things? To begin, I think that it's very observant of you to know that something was going on. I think most people in those sort of situations with multiple dogs and dogs that you've had for a while, you learn to read subtle cues that they give you. Ladybug does it to me when she really is desperate to go to the toilet and I'm ignoring her. She comes and stares at me mm-hmm. and right away I know, oh, you are busting and you're going to piss on the carpet if I don't take you out. So those sort of things, most dog owners go, oh, yes, I know what that means. That's a cue for this behavior. In the situation that you're talking about, wow. That- Let me preface before you say anything else. If a client told me this, I'd call bullshit. Yep. If a client told me- But you haven't experienced it yet, right? And being a person that prides themselves on on thinking about the sciences of psychology and behavior, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. I don't know where- It's anomalous. I don't know where to file this because very clearly she came to tell me that something was going on, but- was she telling me or was she just making sure that I was seeing her so that she couldn't get the blame for it? Well, rather than immediately diagnose it, let me ask you a question that I would ask a client. What is the usual procedure or the consequence of dogs doing that sort of thing in your house when there's been so um, it doesn't a happen often, like that? It doesn't happen often, but whenever I find a mess – my go-to is to be disappointed about the whole thing and I'll put the dogs outside yep. while I clean up the mess. And so I like if I open my front door and a dog has wrecked something, right? Like neither of my dogs are shit in the house dogs. That's never been an issue. But probably it's always going to be very – in his life of being allowed to be in the house, he's probably destroyed four or five pillows yep. and one pair of shoes. right. Maybe two pairs of shoes. And is Val present to his punishment? Like, is she present to it or but, is she been, has it been a- But here's the thing, I've never caught him. What I have caught him one time doing and what I figured out with the pillows, because when it's an arousal issue, like I get it, right? Like I, I understand that arousal has to go somewhere. It's not his fault. He is a Malinois that I forced to live in the house. No, it's our fault. We, exactly. we, we don't address right? it correctly. So I'm not, it's yeah. not like it's a big deal. Yeah. But one time what I did realize, because what happened with a bunch of pillows in the house was he was wrecking them, but in this very bizarre way. And what I realized was he was trying to undo the zipper. And I think, because I, I caught him doing it, is that there's a zipper on the pillow, like we wash the yeah. cover. And he tries to undo that. Like, I think that he enjoys trying to bite the little thing and manipulate the zipper because yep. that like- Remy's most comfortable state is mildly frustrated. That's Mm. how he lives his life, right? Like a little bit pissed off about something is what he wants to be all the time. That's why he enjoys training so much because he's like, I'm trying to get the thing. He loves it when, like we've talked about in the past, if there's two Kongs on the floor and one of them goes under the couch, he has no interest in the one that's available (laughs) to him. He only wants to get the one that's under the couch. Yeah, the forbidden fruit. 
Yeah. Yeah. And and he'll do that within the rules of like arousal in the house. Like he, he's not just going to light up the chainsaw in his face and cut through the couch. He like tries to get under it and he pours at it and cries and all that sort of thing. Yep. I think that he enjoys doing the zipper and he must do that quite a bit when I'm not around. And sometimes he probably rips it. And then once he rips it, he's like, oh, fuck it. I'm destroying this whole thing. Yeah. Right? Like that's my thought process on it. But- in times when I've caught that anything's wrecked in the house, I do the same thing. I'm like visibly upset at the dogs, but I, I don't rouse on them or anything because I haven't caught them. But the mess Explain is Explain that. Like when you say I'm visibly upset with the dogs, well, like, like what I, does that look it, like? When I come home normally, it's jump in my arms, let's cuddle, let's do the whole like Remy jumps all over me, Val goes between my legs, I go outside, they run around, they do crazy shit, I hold and cuddle them both and I squeeze them. It's like a big reunion, But that right? doesn't happen when you see the broken no. pillow. So if I come home- To Val as well, to, even to though both. it's Remy's fault? Yeah, to both. Yep. Right? So both- Because oh, I can't be so sure who does it. she's paired in with yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. So I can't be sure who does it. Right. So, But you know I, it's him. Wow, I can make a pretty fair assessment, <laughs> right? So I put them both outside. Yep. No emotion or actually no emotion. Like well, I'm sad, right? Yeah. I put them both outside. I clean up mm-hmm. and then I might leave them outside for a period. Yeah. And then I eventually bring them back in and all is forgiven and we carry on. If I catch Remy, which I have, then I yell at him. No, I use his like punishment marker and he stops immediately. Right. I've never had to use any like real physical punishment for that kind of stuff. Not in recent times. Like when, when he was young, I had to teach him this stuff, but like I would literally, if he grabbed something, I would have to like choke him off it at that point Mm. and like physically put him outside. And I used a lot of like negative punishment at that point. Like I'd put him outside or put him in the kennel. He's Malinois. He wants to be in the house. He wants to be with people. And he learned to keep his shit together over literally years of like small repetitions of doing that. Yep. I have caught them in the past. It's him he gets roused on. And even that night, like as soon as he sees me, he's like, look what you made me do. <laughs> he runs <laughs> and he runs and gets in the kennel himself. Yep. Right? Like he's like, oh, fuck it, this is going to happen. Yeah. I've been a bad boy, right? This yep. is it. But so that's my question. Like, I don't know. To answer that in the reductionist dog trainer that I would usually process that in my mind from a client to a trainer, what I would probably say, and that's the reason I asked you that question to lead with You told me originally that Valerie is very empathetic, right? Mm -hmm. So empaths feel things differently than most people do. They feel things very deeply. I think she's empathetic. If a dog can be empathetic. Well, it sounds like she is Mm. without, you know. It certainly appears that way. From what I've seen with Valerie, she does seem like a deep thinking little dog with certain things like that. And this might have people kicking their dashboard like we generally say. They might be saying, no, that can't be. Don't discount things that we don't absolutely know. This is the whole thing to being open-minded. Mm-hmm. There's a very good saying that says, be open-minded, but not so open-minded that your brain falls out. <laughs> okay. And and I like that saying. I think it summarizes a lot of people I know because I do know some very open-minded people who think laterally and you're definitely one of them. You're a very deep thinking, open-minded person. So when you say things like this to me, I don't discount it quickly. Other people, sometimes I think they're a little eccentric Mm -hmm. with their behavior with their dogs. And with them, I would say that sometimes it is anthropomorphic. But let's get back to Val and this whole burning question. My thoughts, the reductionist dog trainer side in me would think that Valerie, yes, she is a bit more empathetic. Remy definitely is not. He's a teenage boy, like a six-year-old. Yeah. He doesn't care about your feelings or anyone no, else's. No, he's, he's just a six-year-old wrecking ball. Mm-hmm. And I've known him since he's been sweet, tiny, precious baby. Sweet, precious, tiny little baby Robco. Yeah. I've known him since that time. So I've known him pretty much his whole life up until now. 
And I've known Valerie for a long time, not her whole life, but I've known her since she was probably about, how old is she now? She's nine, nearly 10. So I've probably known her since she was three because I think you and I have known each other. No, even younger. She, You've known her since she was like 18 months. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Okay. So I've known her for a long time. And in that time, I would agree that she is very an emotional little dog. Being the case, I think the fact that she is punished alongside with Remy, uh-huh. the fact that she sees this and then she gets the consequences too, she sees him doing this and thinks, fuck, my life is going to get shit here now. I'm going to get put outside. I'm going to get put outside. So I need to do something about it. And that's the opportunistic side of a dog mm-hmm. is to think, I didn't do anything to deserve this. And I think that what Jane said before is-, is So you think that's probably accurate, that she wanted to be seen? Yes, I do. Yeah, okay. I feel that she probably has been through that rodeo enough times now to see what the outcome is. And most dogs are smart enough to work out, oh, this is a fucked up situation mm-hmm. for me. I've got to get out of this. Otherwise, I'm going to be in it whether I like it or not. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's so much an anthropomorphic view. I just think that's intelligence on the dog's side to realize every time this has happened before, I've been involved in the punishment. Mm. Whereas she thinks the best way to do that is not be here. Mm-hmm. Let him be accountable to it himself. And I think that's reasonable. I think that shows a degree of intelligence. And I believe that I've seen it a multiple amount of times with my dogs. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's anthropomorphism, but I don't think it's a superpower in the dog either. Yeah. Okay. So, so you think a dog can comprehend the idea that something is happening and if I'm blamed for this, there'll be punishment. So therefore I need a strong alibi and has put herself in a position to have witnesses that can be a part of her alibi. Right? I, got a, like, I got a question for you, my friend. Yeah. Why does a dog do what it does? Yeah, to better its own situation, for sure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, for sure. So how is that not bettering its own situation? No, totally it is. But yeah. like that's very complex. That to me, and, and I is agree. It, is it very complex or well, is it just, is it trial by fire? Because there's obviously been a lot of times where she hasn't done that. Like she might have done something like hide or move to a different part of the room, but that was non-effective and she still copped the punishment. So this time she thought, I'm going to try something entirely different. Mm. I'm going to go up the stairs and be in the bathroom this time, Mm. which to me is like avoiding the definition of insanity, of doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different Mm. result, which dogs don't do, which is why they are so good at shaping games and Mm. humans are generally not. When you're watching a dog go through this and you're doing continuous and variable schedules and so forth, dogs work out quickly. This is not to my advantage. I can't stay here anymore Mm. because the clicks have stopped happening. Mm. So they venture out and they try different things. Maybe reductionist, but maybe realistic as well, that she's just thought, well, I've tried moving to this side of the room. I tried hiding under the kitchen table or I tried to being in, in the kitchen. None of that worked. I still copped the punishment. This time I'm going up the stairs and this time it paid off for her. This Mm. time she got the reward. I think before we start to cast these emotional aspersions onto them, possibly we could look at it from a realistic system or a function where they can sort of work out, I tried everything else, it didn't work, let me try this, and it did. Mm. Because most species, without having to be highly intelligent, would try to do these type of things. Mm. You know, like the evolution of of most species of eating the poison berries to then evolving where they don't eat them. The whole species avoids them because the other ones have got terribly sick or died off. It has to happen or else the whole species is doomed. So they have to try different behaviours. They have to reach out and try different things. So maybe that's what happened or maybe 
she thought, fuck this dog, I'm going to go tell on him. Mm. I, I don't know, to be honest. But that's how I would try and work it out in my mind because that sits better with me based on working with a lot of dogs yeah. and, and owners. And it doesn't make it so complicated for the owner to try and think about it then because then if they focus too much on the dog has this special gift, the problem then is that they can then endow the dog with too much responsibility and then the dog's life will get fucking miserable because of it. Mm. That's the negative downside to it. Because once they think you know, then they start punishing more frequently because they think that then you're being non-compliant because you're being spiteful. Or Yeah, yeah. I think like option C, and I tried for a long time to say it was probably this, but I just can't, I just don't think it's the case, mm. is that she's kind of scared of him when he's in drive, right? Yeah. So she might have you, just- You been, know that? Like you see that? Yeah, you, she won't. This is my next story I want to ask is about yeah, sure. him. When he kicks into drive, she gives him a wide berth yep. because she's a real thug to him in the house, like yep. really. And that's why they don't play very well together because she won't play because she knows that in that simulated fight, he might realize that he could beat her. Yes. And she really staunchly rules over him with an iron fist. And so when he's in drive, she gives him a pretty wide berth just to be like, I don't want to be around that because I can't compete and I need him not to know that I can't compete. Yep. The possibility exists that just because he'd kicked into drive down there and was ripping something apart, she was like, fuck that. I don't, I don't want to be around you while you're like that because you're potentially dangerous to me. But she was so clearly trying to get my attention, which makes me think that's not the case. You know? What do you think? I agree that I th with you that I think that she was trying to develop an alibi. She was like, no, no, you need to see me because later you will find the mess. <laughs> but even then, like that doesn't really line up with a lot of what we teach people about when you find the mess in the house, punishing the dog in that moment is not going to help and blah, blah, blah. That's where I'm kind of struggling with it a little but, bit. But you kind of have punished them because your behaviour's changed. Yeah, and totally. That, and to a, a dog that feels deeply, that's punishment. Yeah. Not getting the usual, not seeing the standard, yeah. seeing the angry face or the disappointed face. Dogs are micro-expressionalists. They fucking feel shit over that sort of stuff. Yeah. The reason I know that is as I'm almost certain that this conversation has happened in different sequences – but I know that when I've talked to people before, I've said, just crack the tiniest smile when you're staring at your dog and your dog is staring at you and watch what they do. Yeah, yeah. You tail know, starts to wag tail wags, the dog gives you that head tilts, the dog leans in, it starts playing, yeah. it runs for a toy, it does all those sort of things. They watch us, they study us. Yeah. We take for granted how we communicate with each other. I know that you don't and I know that I don't because we've both been taught to look deeply into the way that people behave in different scopes, in different fields for different reasons, survivalism, mm. job, lots of different reasons. We've been taught look deeper, see how people do things. Me, it was a parental thing as well. You know, mm. I had to learn survivalism for myself as a young kid. Mm. I had to learn how to watch the read. Yeah. Dogs are masters at these type of things. Their whole world evolves around, you know, like you're the fucking person who decides whether they starve to death or whether they eat that day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So they need they to- They have to be in tune. They have to be in tune. Yeah. They must be in tune. There are many people out there who are the scourge of the people that we go against entirely who've mistreat and beat and do all sorts of horrendous things to dogs. Mm. And some of them have to learn, I need to watch this motherfucker today before they launch an attack on me. Yeah. All right. So here's my next question. Yeah. I'm actually enjoying this. It's Remy's favorite thing in the world is taking out the garbage. Yep. There have been times where 
I have, like the bin when you tie it up. The trash, as yep. most of our listeners would call it. Yeah, the trash. So that's in the laundry, like next to the kitchen. Yep. When that gets full, you know, you take the bag out. And then because I live in a townhouse complex, it's a big communal bin area. I have to go down stairs, through, down the stairs, through yep. the garage, yep. out to the front of the street to put my bin liner into the big bin. Yep. His favorite thing in the world. And honestly, I think this is when he appears to me to be the most happy. He seems in that moment to be the most fulfilled is like, he'll be asleep on the couch. And as soon as he sees me like pulling that bin liner out, he's like up and he's like, oh, we're on. And what he does, his routine is, I've never taught him this, right? Like I have just kind of managed him through the situation because he always just goes with me. You know, whenever I go downstairs, he'll go with me, right? If I go to get something out of the garage, he'll come with me. But he just kind of walks down there. Like he just is like, it's an opportunity for me to go down the garage. Maybe it's where all my bike work gear is. He just kind of looks at it all and, you know, like normal shit. Hmm. But when he sees me going to take out the bin, he gets super excited. He waits at the door. And normally if we go, I'm going down to the garage and it's like I'm just walking down there, he'll just run down by himself, right? He just goes down the stairs and he'll meet me down there. If I'm taking out the bin, he waits for me at the stairs. And when I get to the stairs, he like nods. I like get out of my way because he's at the top of the stairs. And he takes off like a bull out of a gate, goes flying down the stairs. And if anyone's in the garage or if they're on the street, he barks at them. But in the same way that he barks at birds, like he's not going to bite them. There's no intent. But it looks to me, and this is another point where I think I'm potentially being anthropomorphic, but I want to ask your opinion. Mm. It looks a lot to me like he's doing like a little security patrol. And it feels like this is probably like one of the first jobs of a dog was like ancient human is taking the rubbish to the perimeter of the settlement and I need support when I go out there. you got to bark and scare away any of the shit that might be out there that could cause me problems because he runs down so happy and he'll bark if there's anyone down there. He runs around, he goes to the front gate, he like walks along the gate. Now, this is a dog that, no, he wouldn't care if people come and go from that gate normally day to day. It has no bearing on him. He wouldn't even, if he was busy doing something, he wouldn't even, he might look and see who they were, but he wouldn't get up and mm. go and see him. He run along, he'll bark at them, he'll try and push them away, and then he'll come and stand by the bin while I put things in the bin. And then as fast as he went down, he sprints back up into the house. I read into that, that he thinks that this is a job that we do together. Like, and he loves it. Right. And when he was younger, I would give him something to carry because I wasn't sure whether he would bite someone if he found them. Right. And so like he would get something out of the bin or whatever, just something to be in his mouth, like a cardboard box or Mm. something like that. Something to be in his mouth, because if he had that initial, I'm going to bite something, that is going to go into whatever he's holding first. It's going to buy me a couple of seconds to then use obedience or stop him or whatever, right? Like it's going to buy me, I'm at least going to see it coming. How anthropomorphic do you think I'm being when I read into that, that he is doing a little clearing patrol of the garage? Now, mind you, this is a dog that, yes, is trained to bite people and all of that, and we've done civil work and all that kind of shit, but we've I've never done any like protection-based scenarios. I've never done anything from... He's not a protection dog. I would never take him somewhere and expect that he was going to protect me. I don't want him to feel that way. I've never shown him those pictures. All the bite work he's done is very sport-based. It's very contextual. Like, you know, when we've done civil work, it's been – you did most of it. It's been very much like you're here to do this, yep. not like at home. And I've never done any civil work at home. I've never had anyone stalk him there. He's done bite work in the garage, but he's never done anything to bring real aggression. All behaviours that we see with our dogs are – 
observational evolution. Mm-hmm. We're witness to it. We see it and we manifest a lot of it. So I guess the, again, to start the question sequence off is, has he ever been punished for it before, like doing this behavior? No, I love it. Like it amuses me. He's happy doing it. Well, that's why I think this has become evolutionary in itself is because he sees that you like it so yeah, much. Yeah, so you think that might be why he I think enjoys he, it. I think he likes it because you've laughed and giggled. and We have a great time doing it. Why wouldn't he do it then? Because yeah. it's so rewarding for him so, to yeah, okay. escalate the behavior. You watch children do those sort of things where they're playing with their dad and, you know, they, their dad is sweeping up and then the kid reaches for the broom and the dad laughs and gives the kid the broom. Now, I know kids are different. I'm not trying to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, like it's an evolution. Like they think daddy's cleaning up at the house, you yeah. know, and I want to do it. And now dad's laughing and now he's going, oh, look, oh, he's going to do the yard for me. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, like it's a big game and it's so rewarding in itself. There's never been a reason for him not to do it. Because you've never punished him for it. No. It's, it's just been mass reward. Yeah. You know, like a special time between you and him where the more he does a behavior, you go, oh, look, he's doing something else. He's stacked on something else. Mm-hmm. And he thought, well, why wouldn't I? Because you love this. Clearly you do because, you know, you're laughing, you're smiling, you're having a good time, you're playing with me, going, oh, you silly old dog, and giving me a big mm-hmm. c- the bro hugs to our dogs when they're doing all these sort of things. Mm-hmm. The reason I'm saying this is because I've done the same thing with my dogs when they're doing it and I see the escalation in it. There's no reason why the dog wouldn't evolve in that type of behavior. Mm. No reason at all. So I agree and I'm very confident that is the reason. But the only thing that gives me cause to think there's something else going on is that he barks at people if they're down there. Like he normally wouldn't. He doesn't care. And, and what do you do when he barks at people? Nothing real. I don't necessarily punish him, but if it's like, oh, I don't, if someone lives in the building. Yeah. Because I initially had a lot of concern that it's going to blast them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if it's someone on the street, I don't really say anything. I just let him do it because there's a fence and stuff. He just scares the shit out of someone. <laughs> and like, for sure, I think dogs can enjoy. Like nervy dogs like scaring people because it gives them control for sure. But a dog like him who's very stable, very powerful mentally, he just thinks it's funny, I think, when people- But don't forget also that's the freest he's allowed to be outside his controlled- Yeah, true. His lifestyle is very controlled and operated and nine-tenths of the time Remy is put in a box of what he is and isn't allowed to do. a figurative box, like not a literal box. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he only does this bark at people when I take the garbage out. Right? Yeah, because like, he's allowed to, because that's the freest he can be. Yeah, but he's just as free when I go down there to get something out of my car. We go in the same space and he's allowed to do the same shit. The only difference is I'm not carrying the garbage and he doesn't do it. He just will walk down there with You've me. You've done something different with him. Something, I have to. Something where he feels like he's more at liberty to do it. Because there's probably been a time where he's done it once and you've laughed or rewarded and he's basically thought, so I am allowed to do this now. Yeah. I don't remember a specific time, but I feel like maybe in his adolescence he barked at someone as we're doing it. Mm. If someone else were telling me this story, that's what I would say. I'd say probably in his adolescence when he was nervy, right? Like not that he was ever nervy, but that he wasn't as confident in himself. He probably did bark at someone and they moved on and he enjoyed that. Like it gave him that. that and you let it go. Sense. You didn't say anything. Didn't say anything. Right. He's happy with it. Why wouldn't he do it again? Why yeah. wouldn't he, why wouldn't he experiment with that? Why but wouldn't Glenn, he think? He loves it. He loves it so much. And yeah, but if, that that's what I'm saying is that it, it's his freest time he's allowed to be Yeah, because most of his life is constructed. And, and the reason I wanted to talk about this is the other day I was going out and I took the bin out on my way out. Cause you go past the bins on the way through 
And Jane sent me a video of Remy crying at the door <laughs> because because I wasn't coming back in. He didn't go with me. Yeah. And he's like, you son of a bitch. This is my favourite thing. Why wouldn't you let me come with you? You know, when we use the term at liberty, which is a term for me that Jay phrased, mm-hmm. it's the first time I probably heard it because I would have said a free dog. Mm-hmm. The concept that I generally, I think people misphrase the term at liberty it's what I call their terms of liberty, which mm-hmm. is basically you're at liberty as long as you do all the things that I want you to do. Mm-hmm. But that's not truly at liberty. Mm-hmm. And when I'm thinking of what Remy is doing, that's probably the only time that he really feels like the yoke of control is lifted off him when you've got that bag. Yeah. Mate, look, you know him far more intimately than I do. Yeah. And I know with my own dogs, like I know with Randy – when he, he's out playing with me in the backyard, he does similar things to what you're talking about because that's the time when the yoke is completely off him mm-hmm. and he knows that I can't stop him and I can't control him out in those environments. He will check back in with me and then and sometimes he'll think, oh, should I do this? And you can see him questioning like I'm about to do something which is a little risque and a little bit different than I would normally do. Should I do it Mm. or should I constrain to my training? Mm. I can see him diagnosing that as a dog because he's thinking, I've never really been allowed to go this range before without there being consequences for it. There was one time where Randy did the same sort of thing. He went beyond the range where he wasn't meant to go and he turned around and looked at me and he goes, I'm outside your field of control now. Fuck you. Yeah, Yeah. And I thought- I know exactly what you're thinking there. And he was. He was just thinking, fuck you. And I thought, well, fuck you. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn around and go back inside. Yeah, and you can, Yeah, myself. you can stay out there and, you know, entertain <laughs> the shit out of yourself. Yeah. And that didn't last long. That lasted all about five minutes until he thought, oh, I'm out here by myself. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then he came running back and he wanted to come in. Of course, I rewarded him yeah, because yeah, he yeah. made a good choice. But the next time we went out, he decided he was going to do it again and he saw me turn my back and he goes, oh, that's what's happened. Yeah. So that was my way of controlling him. That was my way of reigning in control. True liberty would have been if he would just went, fuck you, and he just ran out there and stayed out there half the night, which mm. some dogs choose to do. Mm. But a guise of liberty, and this is why one stage I called it the illusion of control, is that we give dogs this scope of control but really we are pulling the strings in the background. We mm. are engineering everything. And maybe, just maybe with Remy, going back to Remy, maybe, just maybe, that's the only time where he feels I'm at complete fucking freedom now. Mm. I can bark at people in the street because dad laughs at it when normally he doesn't allow it. Like if we go to the car, it's structured, it's engineered. There's mm. a process to doing. And you are, my friend, a very systems guy. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. your world revolves around systems with your obsessions in things. Like yeah, once yeah, you yeah. get fixated on things, like you develop scaffolding around things, how to rein it in, how to control it, how to make sure it all falls into place, how to make it better, how to do version 1.1 and then 1.2. You are a fucking, you are like new software when you start getting your brain on things. And that's how you do your dogs. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that's the only time where Remy goes, he doesn't do that when he's got fucking garbage in his hand. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I like to think that he does a little clearing patrol though. <laughs> but so so that's my point is I, that's where I wanted to get to is that I know that's anthropomorphic, that he is clearing the path for me, but I enjoy the idea of thinking that. And I think then, that- Then what's the hurt in it? There's none. There's that's none. right. That's what I want to talk about. That's yeah. what I feel like I've unpacked is that a lot of the time, maybe even most of the time, when people are being anthropomorphic, 
there isn't any hurt in it. I think the only time it it becomes a problem is if you accept that I'm being anthropomorphic, like we have just done now, Mm. if you accept that you are and you know it's not hurting anyone and it's all cool, that's good. But when you're trying to pitch it to a fucking stadium full of people, that's when it becomes cultish. Totally. It's the, yeah. there's and, times and I've it's a watched, huge problem. I've watched trainers online and in person trying to convince people of things like this. And I think you're a son of a bitch because you actually know no, that, that's not the case. You know, this is a layer cake that you're building to draw people in on yeah. their emotions simply to suck money out of their wallets. And there's no other reason you don't care about them and you don't care about the dogs. All you care about is making yourself sound like some grand wizard Mm. or some guru or a yogi or whatever you want to call them that fools people and tricks them into loving you or or accepting you or giving you money or something Mm. like that. That's when I do see it becoming a problem. I think you and I have expressed thoroughly and consistently over the time that we're all for relationships with your dogs. You know, this is the reason why we do our careers and this is the reason who we are as people and why we have stuck at this podcast for so long is because we love watching people getting off on having fun with their dogs, Mm. like whatever it is, for whatever reason. I don't care if you own a, a gimpy little chihuahua or anything up to the largest dog in the world. If I see reels of people loving their dogs, lying on the couch, just having life with their dogs, really enjoying their dogs, I love that shit. It makes me feel happy inside thinking what a great relationship that is. Yeah. Totally. I hope it's not artificial. I, I hope mean, that's the point, right? Yeah, that's the point. That's right. That's the point. So that sort of stuff doesn't bother me at all. The point that we're having conversations where we're exploring this and we know that it makes us feel good and we like it and the dogs are a very important part of our lifestyle, I say lean into it, embrace Mm. it. Enjoy your dog. Don't make it so mechanical and try to have an explanation for everything that you're doing. If you enjoy it and your dog enjoys it with you, then I think that's part of the greatest part of owning a dog or being in a, in a relationship with a dog is that somehow along the line, you kind of got it what it is to be Mm. in that sort of relationship. Mm. Well said, sir. Mm. I reckon that's the time to wrap it all up. Yep. Yep. Well, that's my stories about my peculiar behaviors from my dog and what I enjoy to read into them. Do you sing to your dogs? Not specifically to them. I sing. Yeah. Like when they're around. I have theme songs that I sing to all my dogs. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Oh, that's I'm not going to sing them on here, but Narelle and I make up theme songs for all the dogs. We've always had a had a theme song for every dog. Like when we get a puppy, Narelle will ask me, she goes, what's the song for this dog? And I said, I haven't got one yet. It'll come to me when You'd I- You make up the song or you assign it a song? It's just a song. Could be the lyrics of a known song that I change okay. the words to be about the dog. Mm-hmm. Like it's a journey of the stupid things that the dog does. Well, Valerie has a whole song for sure. <laughs> yeah. The Amy Winehouse song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Truly, I enjoy trying to understand dogs' motivations for stuff. And I think that it's nearly impossible when you understand dogs at a really high, yeah, I understand dogs at a pretty high level. I do find myself having to check myself pretty regularly and being like, oh, no, you're probably reading into something that isn't there. As you pointed out, like Remy for sure is highly reinforced by laughter. He for sure thinks that laughter is highly reinforcing. I can see that at club when he plays the ball game, when he holds a string and runs around and everyone laughs at him and he's getting off on it. He speeds up. He speeds up He gets off on it. Yeah. 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 And like he does all kinds of funny little things. Like I'll have to film it one night and post it in the group so people can see. But like when he's not a social dog, he's not antisocial, but he doesn't enjoy the company of other people. Mm. Yeah. There's no interest in other people. 
And, you know, at club he'll go last because, you know, I'm busy working other dogs. But then I let him run around. But then when it's time to clean up and I want to put him away, he suddenly pretends that he's social. Oh, I had to laugh about that last week. Last week when you were doing that, when you were about to put him away – and You're he went right. to you, didn't he? He, he came yeah. to me. He gave me the Uncle Doughy eyes yeah. where he looked at me and went, Oh, old friend. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, You pretend off. <laughs> he pretends yes. to give a fuck about I thought, you. Fuck off. The rest of the time you ignore me. And then now, because now you play like we're old fucking soldiers together. Yeah. And I thought, No, you're not getting a cuddle off me. We need to wrap up. But even unpacking the way he does that would be very interesting because that yes. has to be reinforcement driven because like it stops him getting put away. Yeah. Right? So he endures something that he clearly doesn't want. He's just a high-level thinking dog. It's quite funny. Yeah. Anyway. All right. That's it <laughs> for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, just like, rate, share, subscribe. Do yep. all of that. Mm. Uh, get on our mailing list. Don't just be flippant about that shit, though. Like, go at it with a purpose. Yeah, like, get it. in there. Do it. Go on to Spotify. Go on to Apple Podcasts. Like, write a review. Like, seriously. Yeah, if it you does help. If you it really does help. It does help. Because when I am looking to add people onto the discussion group, mm-hmm. I see them saying, I heard about it through Spotify. Yeah. I heard about it through- the recommended thing. They're recommended because yeah. the algorithm is now supporting us. Yeah, that is important. So if you could do that, that'd be great. Please. Truly the best way to support the show is just actually tell a person IRL, like actually- IRL? Yeah, in real life. Yeah. With your voice and make them use their ears, right? Like, yeah. And, and don't record it, like actually say it to their face. So just go up and still jam your ear pod straight in their ear. It's the best way what to do it. What have you got an overhead? What do you mean an overhead? Overhead is like we're wearing now. Oh, just take it off, put it on the other person. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You'll find a way. Spread the love. Yep. If you want to support the show, best way to do that is through Patreon. Three bucks a month gets you access to this giant backlog of information, new stuff going forward. Yep. Maybe by the time, no, there'll be another episode, but end of this month, my IACP presentation is going to be in there, showing that to a few people. Well- You know, I haven't seen that yet. Oh, really? No. I'll I'll send it to you. Yes, please. Uh, You'll get access to it at the end of the month. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) 10 bucks gets you a live stream. You know, you could give as much as you want. There's all kinds of shit in there. Get in there and have a look. There's links in the show notes, all of that. Really, really, truly appreciate all your patrons. If you're like, fuck you guys on your Patreon, but I will wear your shirt. You could get into spring and buy one of those. New stuff going in there all the time. Uh, Jane's actually just redone the logo, Glenn. I've got it here to show oh, you. Oh, wow. I haven't yeah. seen it. She literally just finished it today. If you want to get in touch with us, jump into the Facebook discussion group. Always growing there. Please, 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 please join the email list. You can give as much or as little information there as you want. All we need really is a name and email. Yeah. But we've got all the access for all the address and phone number and all that. You don't have to put any of that in. If you don't want to put that in, just select the country as nothing and then you don't have to put the address. So cool. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but if you put that stuff in, maybe you'll get a present in the mail. And if people don't understand why we got the mailing list, listen to the one we did with Luke and Panos mm. where in the last closing seconds, yeah, or not the last closing Zoom seconds, to the end. but at towards the end, explain in detail. Yeah, Luke and Pat did a very very detailed reason why we're doing the mailing list. So, so it will t- it will give you all of the info. That's the life with your dog or life with your canine paradigm, I think I called it. Yep. All right. Or Shoot us an email. Yeah. We're info at the Canopy. What was that word you said before that when you went EO? All right. All right. <laughs> Shoot us an email. We are info at the canopyparadigm.com. Goodbye. Oh, Whoa, you've hit the wrong button. I got changed my voice. Is it, it's just you that's changed. Yeah, I don't know why. Oh, God. Oh, God.